We have now arrived at the next part of our worship today, which will be actually me speaking. I will be going over a new section of our look through in systematic theology. Obviously, as you know, Jason, over the last few weeks, has went over the doctrine of scripture. And I have been tasked with the responsibility of going over the doctrine of God, which is by no means an easy topic to exhaust, but I just certainly do look forward over the next few weeks to being able to do that with you. Now, with all that being said, before we discuss what God is, his attributes, we first have to establish that he is, that he exists, that there is a God. You know, if we're going to start this series discussing God and his defined attributes, again, I just want to establish, we've got to establish that there is a God whom we need to be studying. Well, how do we do that? How do we discover who this God is? How do we discover that there is a God and this God requires, or what this God, excuse me, requires from us? This is what we'll be examining today. Throughout the 2,000 years that we have of church history, and even during biblical times, we have had believers who have sought to demonstrate to unbelievers that there is a God that exists, and then that God is the God of the scriptures. In the Bible, we have instances, for example, like in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 39, where Elijah challenged the Baal worshipers and demonstrated that his God was the one true God and Baal was a fake God. We see in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, when Paul was on Mars Hill and he was looking at all the false gods and he stood in Mars Hill and talked to the Greeks in regards to who the one true God actually is. And then post-canon, we see throughout church history, people like a Justin Martyr or an Augustine or an Aquinas, where they sought to demonstrate who this God is. Is there a God to believe in? Now, I'm going to set aside those instances that we see from the Bible of believers making a defense for God's existence. And I want to focus on, you know, those believers post-closing of the canon. You know, when you look over the many ways in which people have sought to defend God's existence, we can basically break that down into two main categories. Either they rooted their defense in the scriptures, meaning from the scriptures, they justified or defended God, or we see people making the argument outside of scripture. So in other words, using the wisdom and intellect of man. Of those defenses that have come solely through the mind, of men apart from scriptures, there have been four general categories that these arguments have fallen into. And what I'd like to do is go through each of these and talk about their shortcomings, their failures. Now, these explanations are not meant to be exhaustive or technical, but simplified just so you can get the basic gist of each of these. So with that being said, the first argument that we've seen throughout church history has been what's been known as the cosmological argument. And this argument is basically an empirical type argument that looks at the world around us and notices the relation of cause and effect. 
basically every effect has a cause. For example, if you notice a book falling from a bookshelf, you realize what there had to have been a reason why that book fell. Whether it was air, whether it was maybe a, a mouse that knocked the book or someone else that knocked the book over, you knew that that book didn't fall for no reason. In the same way, if you see a baby, no one thinks that that baby just came out of existence, but rather you assume that someone must have given birth to that baby. That baby just didn't appear out of thin air. In the same manner, when we look at the world around us, what we see is thousands, if not millions and billions of effects happening regularly. Each of these effects must have had a preceding cause, the trees sprouting out from the ground, the mountains being carved by water, baby that is born. And those causes, likewise, did not come out of nowhere, but at one point was in effect brought about by another preceding cause. For example, a mother who gives birth to her, a child herself was birthed by her mother, so on and so forth. And according to this argument, all of these causes and effects had to, at some point, had an ultimate first cause. Something or someone who got it all going. If there wasn't, we would fall into infinite regression, going back further and further in time without no beginning. Going back to my example of the women giving birth. If there was not a first woman who started the succession of women giving birth, we'd be going back in time, according to this argument, forever. And if something did not kick this off, how in the world did we get to now? Charles Hodge, in his systematic theology, explains it in this way. The first argument to prove that the world as a whole is not self-existent and eternal is that all its parts, everything that enters into its composition, is dependent and mutable. A whole cannot be essentially different from its constituent parts. An infinite number of effects cannot be self-existent. If a chain of three links cannot support itself, much less can a chain of a million links. Nothing multiplied by infinity is still nothing. If we do not find the cause of our existence in ourselves, nor our parents in themselves, nor their progenitors in themselves, going back ad infinitum is only adding nothing to nothing. What the mind demands is a sufficient cause, and no approach to it is made by going back indefinitely from one effect to another. We are forced, therefore, by the laws of our rational nature to assume the existence of a self-existent cause, being endued with power adequate to produce this ever-changing phenomenal world." End quote. What I'll be doing is just to give you a, 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 an idea, pretty much I'm going to go through each of the other arguments and afterwards I'm going to take time to really explain why, again, they fall short of really the standard that we need to be looking at. So that being said, so the next argument that we've seen is what's known as the teleological argument. This is another argument that makes its case for God's existence by means of intelligent design, by means of purpose, saying that all that we see around us have been made with a purpose by an intelligent mind. No one in their right minds, to give an example, would look at a house and assume that the house randomly came into being by itself, that the bricks and the mortar and the metal all mashed together and then voila, 
we have the Empire State Building. No, no one looks at robots and reaches the conclusion that the wirings and the coding just mixed together and created this technical wonder. We intuitively know that all of these wonders were built or created by someone else. An intelligent mind had to, with purpose, create the robot or design the house or design the car. Now, if we understand that, according to this argument, let's take a look at things that weren't created by humans, like our bodies. When we see, when we see and examine ourselves, what we notice is a level of sophistication unparalleled, unmatched. All the parts working together so perfectly that if one part fails, the entire body fails. You can have your entire body working perfectly fine, but if something is wrong with your heart, it doesn't matter that you have the best fingers in the world. You will die. There is design and purpose in all our organs. And this doesn't stop with us. When we look at the trees, when we look at the plants, when we look at other animals, we see engineering marvel after engineering marvel. Well, we know with things made by man that it took an intelligent person to do that, a person to create these things with purpose. If that is the case with that, why not with us and the world around us? Herman Bavink in his Doctrine of God puts it in this way. To maintain that the universe was brought forth by chance would be about as logical as to affirm that the Iliad was produced by a promiscuous throw of letters. The next argument that we've seen, and probably the most difficult to really follow, is the ontological argument. Now this argument is meant to prove the existence of God by means of producing a migraine headache. It makes the argument for God, the greatest conceived being necessarily existing in reality, from the premise that that which exists in reality is greater than that which exists only in the mind. Anselm, who was Archbishop of Canterbury during the Middle Ages, was the architect of the ontological argument. And this is how he puts it. I'll just let him speak and I'll explain. He says this, hence, even the fool is convinced that something exists in the understanding at least than which nothing greater can be conceived. For when he hears of this, he understands it. And whatever is understood exists in the understanding. And assuredly, that then which nothing greater can be conceived cannot exist in the understanding alone. For suppose it exists in the understanding alone, then it can be conceived to exist in reality, which is greater. Therefore, if that then which nothing greater can be conceived exists in the understanding alone, the very being then which nothing greater can be conceived is one than which a greater can be conceived. But obviously this is impossible. Hence, there is no doubt that there exists a being than which nothing greater can be conceived, and it exists both in the understanding and in reality. And it assuredly exists so truly that it cannot be conceived not to exist. For it is possible to conceive of a being which cannot be conceived not to exist. And this is greater than one which can be conceived not to exist. Hence, if that then which nothing greater can be conceived can be conceived not to exist, it is not that then which nothing greater can be conceived. But this is an irreconcilable contradiction. There is then so truly a being than which nothing greater can be conceived to exist that it cannot be conceived not to exist 
and this being thou art, O Lord, our God. End quote. See, as I mentioned, an argument that proves God's existence by giving you a migraine headache. Basically, let me try to explain this. If you have an idea of the greatest possible being, but that being only exists in the recesses of your mind, then you have not conceived, according to Anselm, of the greatest possible being. It would be like me saying the best possible thing that can happen to me is if I thought about the idea of winning a million dollars. Well, actually, a better conception would be me thinking about actually winning a million dollars. Because me thinking about actually winning a million dollars is better than me thinking about the idea of winning a million dollars. In the same way, if you say that the greatest possible being is one that only exists in your mind and not in reality, well, that being is not the greatest possible being because I can think of a being that's greater than yours, one that exists in reality. The final argument that we see, and has become very popular actually nowadays, is the moral argument, which sets out to prove God's existence through the understanding of morality. Not necessarily that every civilization agrees on what is right or wrong, but that there is no civilization that disagrees that there is a right or wrong. In our modern day and age, because of the widespread materialist understanding of the world because of Darwinism, this argument has definitely grown in popularity. Since materialists have an understanding of the universe as completely material, accounting for ideas such as morality are difficult to do. You can't look at morality through a microscope. The concept of morality is not material. We see the effects of it, but we don't find a moral self. Hence, that has caused many materialists to deny, in the ultimate sense, the, ideals, the idea of moral rights and wrongs. A person using the moral argument to prove God's existence basically asserts that since there is universal agreement on the concept of right or wrong, that idea must have come from someone or somewhere. Now, all of these arguments to attempt to prove God's existence unaided by God can be compelling, but they fall short in one way or another. For example, going back to the first argument, the cosmological argument, the, the idea of first cause. So this argument basically assumes what it's trying to prove in the first mover by first ruling out from the outset infinite regression. It commits the fallacy of begging the question. Just listen to Thomas Aquinas as he attempts to prove the existence of this first cause, this unmoved mover. Whatever moved must be moved by another. If that by which it is moved be itself moved, then this also must be moved by another, and that by another again. But this cannot go on to infinity, because then there would be no first mover. That's what he's trying to prove. And consequently, no other mover seeing that subsequent movers move only inasmuch as they are moved by the first mover. And this also raises another question, another issue. Why are we assuming that this first cause is a being like God? The first cause does not logically necessitate an eternal, infinite, and supernatural being, just a being stronger and more finitely powerful than everyone else. The first cause can simply be genie from Aladdin. 
Robert Raymond, in his systematic theology, he puts it this way. It commits another logical fallacy when it insists that the essence of this first cause is altogether different, infinite, supernatural, uncaused, non-empirical, from the essence of all the second causes upon which its existence is made to rest, finite, natural, caused, empirical. <laughs> Since it is a violation of logic, to ascribe to a cause any properties beyond those necessary to account for the effects. So we see the universe as finite and material. Thus we have no way of logically justifying the existence of a God who is infinite and immaterial. Basically, this argument may prove the existence of some large finite being with enough power to create what we see, like Aladdin's genie, but this argument falls far short from demonstrating the God of the scriptures. And with the teleological argument, similar to the cosmological, there's no reason to assume that the God of intelligent design is the same God of the Bible. Remember, we believe that God not only created the world, but also sustains and governs it as well. While the teleological argument may point to a designer God, it does not point to a sustainer God. Also, in this argument, if there is no rooting in Scripture, it can contradict much of what the Bible teaches. I remember a long time ago reading um, the book by Lee Strobel, Case for a Creator, same person, obviously, that did the book Case for Christ. And in this book, he interviews many people in the field of science and philosophy to make a case for the existence of God. And in one of the chapters, he interviews a philosopher and scientist, Stephen Meyer. In the interview, Meyer talks about the wonders of DNA and how an intelligent mind had to have been the one to create it. In the same interview, however, he talks about the Cambrian explosion, which, according to scientists, was an event that took place in the past where all of a sudden a massive amount of life just appeared on the Earth. Now, while I don't have any problem necessarily with believing that there was a point in time in the past where all of a sudden, life came on the earth. I can just look to Genesis 1 and see one of the days of creation, God creating all land animals. But Meyer talks about how the time frame where this took place was somewhere around 530 million years ago, and it took a span of, I think, 5 to 10 million years. Well, that completely goes against what the Bible tells us about the history of the world, particularly that it's roughly about 6,000 years old. Also, this poses a question, a problem in regards to death. See, the Bible tells us that death came about as a result of the fall. Yet if Meyer is right about how long ago the Cambrian explosion took place, well, then this means that death existed way before Adam and Eve, which means that death was not a result of the fall, which now comes you know, brings us into an issue in regards to our redemption. So again, apart from its rooting in scripture, even this argument, though maybe convincing in some parts, falls short. And lastly, with the ontological argument, outside from it being somewhat difficult to follow, it does pose a problem. See, just because you can conceive of the greatest possible being existing does not necessarily mean that that being actually exists. See, how are you getting from the conception in the mind to actual reality? Going back to Robert Raymond in his Systematic Theology, he writes this. 
Ganello, a French monk of Memorier and Anselm's contemporary, in his rejoinder, on behalf of the fool, said in effect, I have an idea of an island than which no more perfect can be conceived, an idea which therefore includes the island's existence. But my idea of such an island does not mean the island really exists, for such an island really does not exist. So again, just because you can conceive of it doesn't mean it actually exists. Another issue is, how are we defining this greatest being? What might be the most perfect being to me may be different to you. You and I may have a different understanding of what perfect means. Hence, whatever God we are conceiving in our minds may come nowhere close to the God that we are required to believe in. And lastly, with the moral argument, as with the other arguments, and I hope you're seeing where I'm getting at, this argument does not bring us to a proper understanding of God, of the God of the scriptures. See, this may demonstrate the existence possibly of a single entity where we derive our idea of morality, but this does not bring us to the idea of that entity being the God that we confess, nor does it require that we worship him. Why couldn't that God where we derive morality be the God or gods of the Hindus or the God of Islam? We're simply positing our God in the conclusion without showing how we can logically derive at the Christian God starting from this premise. So, as I hope I'm able to show you here, unaided by God, these arguments all fail. And why is that? It's because we were never created to discover God fully unaided by him. And also because of the fall. You see, since Adam sinned in the garden, sin has so warped us that any attempt to try and understand God without God becomes futile. See, nature does attest to the reality of God, but it fails to bring man to a proper understanding of the one true God. Let's not forget what our confession tells us in chapter one, that although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave man without excuse, unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary to salvation. I mean, look around at every civilization that has existed. Has there ever been one that has existed where they had a proper understanding of God without God first revealing himself to them? Have we ever found some remote civilization off the coast of the Pacific Island or Pacific Ocean, excuse me, where no other nation has previously communicated to them? And upon arriving at their shores, we see them worshiping the one true God accurately and rightly. No, that has never happened. When Paul in Acts was in Athens and he saw the Greeks worshiping a multitude of different gods, was any one of those gods the right God? Did Paul, upon looking at all the gods, say, hey, that God over there, that's the God you used to be worshiping. Someone got it right. No, Paul had to tell them about that God. Calvin, in his Institutes, says this, bright, however, as is the manifestation which God gives both of himself and his immortal kingdom in the mirror of his works. So great is our stupidity, so dull are we in regard to these bright manifestations that we derive no benefit from them. So, while 
these well-meaning arguments try to win people to God, they ultimately fail because they attempt to prove spiritual matters through natural means. So how is it that we can truly find out who this God is, what his attributes are? How do we do that? Well, if you've been a member of our church any amount of time, you should know. It's through the scriptures. This is why we went over the doctrine of scriptures first before doing the doctrine of God. The scriptures being our axiom is where we derive our understanding of who God is and how we are to understand him. See, we don't look to nature to try and understand God. Nature may give an idea of a God existing, but tells us nothing about who this God truly is. We don't simply look to pure reason to understand and derive our idea of God. It is only through God revealing himself to us that we can know who he is and what he has done. To try and reason to the one true God apart from revelation is to attempt to do something we were never created to do. I mean, even in the garden, Adam and Eve were not left alone to try and ascertain God and their duties. God communicated to them regularly. So if Adam, when he was unstained by sin, required direct revelation from God, what makes us think that we, corrupted by the fall, don't need direct revelation? Jonathan Edwards mentions this. He that thinks to prove that the world ever did, in fact, by wisdom, know God, that any nation upon earth or any set of men ever did from the principles of reason only, without assistance from divine revelation, find out the true nature and true worship of the deity, must find out some history of the world entirely different from all the accounts which the present sacred and profane writers do give us. Or his opinion must appear to be a mere guess and conjecture of what is barely possible. But what all history assures us never was really done in the world. End quote. Being as the scriptures are the lens through which we learn about the God that we serve, let's now take the final few moments to look at them to see what they say about who this God is. So what do the scriptures tell us about God? First, it does tell us that he exists. Now, the scriptures don't set out to prove God's existence, but rather it presupposes. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. It's presupposing that, yeah, no, this God exists. It also tells us that there's only one God. Isaiah 45 verse 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So we see from God's word himself that he says, there is no other God but me. First Corinthians 8 verse 4 says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. We also see from our Bible that this God, this one true God is a creator and a sustainer. Read Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 for yourself. I won't go through um, those today. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he who hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
We also see from our Bible that he is ruler. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 24 verse 10, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. We also see from our Bible that this one true God who is ruler of the world is alone to be worshiped. In Matthew chapter four, verses eight through 10, when Jesus was being tempted, we see this, we read this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of, kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The Westminster Divines, the ministers who put together our confession of faith, summarize our understanding of who God is in questions four, five, and six of the Shorter Catechism. Question four, which says, what is God? And they answer, God is a spirit, or infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Then we see in question five, are there more gods than one? They answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. And we see in question six, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And they answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same as substance, equal in power and glory. It is with those questions in mind and those verses that we read that we will structure the rest of the study on the doctrine of God. Now, to give you an idea of what we will be looking at over the next few weeks, next, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, I'll be going over the doctrine of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. After that, we will spend some time talking about the incommunicable attributes of God, and then we will wrap all of this up in the last final few weeks discussing the communicable attributes of God. Now, to wrap all of this up, let's remember what we've just gone over. One, that there is only one true God, and we know about that God from our axiom, our standard, which is the Bible. Let's, let's turn my timer off. And lastly, any attempt to rightly learn about or convince others of that one true God apart from the Bible is ultimately futile and will not bring us to a right and proper understanding of God. So we rest on the scriptures knowing that it's through that that we will understand who this God is that we are to serve. So with that being said, next Lord's Day, we will continue our study, study on the doctrine of God from our Bible by focusing our attention now on the Holy Trinity. So now this wraps up our first lesson in the doctrine of God. 